0: Uh, We have like two more weeks in this first part of the book of Genesis, all right? So if you remember when we started this thing, we said that Genesis breaks down into essentially two different parts, all right? So the first part, we're calling the pillars, all right? These are like the foundations for what all the rest of scripture are being built upon, all right, so this is Genesis 1 through 11. So you see things like the creation, that God speaks creation into existence. Then you see his vision for humanity, that he's created us in the Mago Day, he's created us in his image. And then you see that you have the first marriage that happens between Adam and Eve in the garden and then you see sin infiltrate the world through the first fall that happens in the garden we've seen how this kind of teases itself out in the world all the way up to the flood with Noah, where God judges and condemns sin in the world and so we've just been wrestling with these pillars that literally all the rest of scripture are going to be built upon throughout the remainder all the way until the book of revelation all right So we're closing this down, and then we're about to enter into what we're calling the patriarchs. So we're basically Genesis 12 through 50, all right? And these are just the forefathers of the faith. And so we're going to get to wrestle with stories of the forefathers of the faith, particularly three different ones, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all right? All the Bible— continues to come back to these three significant figures. And so we're going to wrestle with their story in the remainder of the book of Genesis. But tonight we're looking at Genesis chapter 10. So we're, like I said, we're coming down the very ends of the pillars. And what we get is another genealogy, all right? So I imagine that your heart's just leaped with joy, as I told you that, right? You get to hear more names, which is just an overwhelming sense of excitement, all right? And so um, as you're trying to like Push it down a little bit. Try to calm yourself down. Here's what is going on. So this genealogy is known as the table of nations, all right? So it's not like a Thanksgiving table. This is like a list, all right? It's like a, a chart with all this different information that's going on. And what's happening here is Moses, who's the author of Genesis, he's tracing the nations of the world back to Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all right? So we get Genesis 10, verse 1 here. Here's what it says. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. And then you just get a list of names, all right? And so here's what I want to do for us tonight, all right? Um, Rather than like having you stand up and reading through literally 70 different names and just boring you to sleep, (laughs) I'm going to try to do something a little bit different. I'm going to try to break down this chart of names, these table of names, in a way that makes sense for us, then I'm going to try to draw out some of the purpose for why Moses would include this in the book of Genesis, all right? So I want to explain it to you. I want to try to bring some purpose, draw some purpose out of it, and then I want to end with some application, all right? I want to help us think, okay, out of all the things that Moses is communicating to us through this table of the nations, like, what, what is it, how does it apply to us? Like, why is this significant for us today? And at the very end of that, I'm going to have us do an exercise together, all right? I'm going to get interesting in here, all right? So uh, this is what we're going to do. So let me begin by explaining for a moment, because Moses has put a lot of thought into this table of nations, all right? So let me begin with some context. So Moses, as we know, he's writing this book during the time of the Exodus, all right? And so imagine that you are a Hebrew, alright you're, you're part of this nation that is under the leadership of Moses, so you're exiting out of Egypt, God's making you into a nation, and then God's giving you someone else's land. All right, If this is you, you're exiting out of a nation, you have this promise that you're going to be this great nation, and then you're supposed to get this land that somebody else is inhabiting, the thing that's probably helpful is to know a little bit about who you're up against, right? To know where they've come from, what they've been through, where they've found their origins. Well, this is exactly what Moses is doing for us in this table of nations. He's providing context and history for all the nations that surround Israel at this point in time. So he's basically like looking at the, the people of God and saying like, hey, here's who you're dealing with, all right? So after this whole flood, you can trace back all these nations that are surrounding you back to the very sons of Noah And here's like their origins, here's sort of the backdrop, here's the story to how they came to be so that you know what you're dealing with. And look, there's few people that are more qualified to do this too, all right? So Moses has street cred, all right? He, if you remember his story, at the point in time that Moses comes about Pharaoh, he is fearful of the Israelites, and so he commands that all the female or all the male children are to be put to death. Moses' parents fear the Lord and not Pharaoh, and so they put him in a basket in the river, and who finds him? Pharaoh's daughter. So who does Moses grow up in their household? He grows up in Pharaoh's house, right? So if you think about Moses' life and just his background and how he grew up, he has all the background of having all the history that Uh, Pharaoh in Egypt has communicated to him as well as those that are around him. So he has like a pretty extensive knowledge for what's going on in the world because he's got just the first best education that you could get at the point in time. But then you also have divine intervention that happens in Moses's life, don't you? Like God personally speaks to him. Like audible voice. Like he goes up on a mountain, God speaks to him, he comes down and he's just radiant because God's glory is all over his face and his body. So if there's any person that's qualified to like bring us this table of nations, all the human history that is happening, Moses is one of the people that you would want to come and bring all this information to us. And so here's how Moses does it, all right? He takes each of Noah's sons and then he shares about their descendants through this table of nations and Moses starts with the nations that are farthest away the ones that the people of God are going to find least recognized um, because they're so distant from them and uh, these are the ones that are least known and then he works towards the the ones that are going to be most applicable to them so it starts with the name of Japheth the last son so Moses is working backwards here all right so I have a chart for you all right Rather than trying to stand up and read all these names, I'm just going to list them for you right here so you can kind of see what's going on. All right, so this is the family history of Japheth, all of his descendants. You have 14 in total here. Um, seven from his own personal sons and seven from his grandsons. And so here's some things that are significant about what's going on here, right? So Japheth is considered the father, the forefather of all the Gentile nations, all right? The ones that are furthest away from the people of God, the Gentiles, Japheth is the one that is the forefather of these nations. So Javan, if you see his name, he has the four uh, sons after him. He's considered the forefather of the Greeks. So that gets you a little bit of an idea of who you're working with here in the family line of Japheth. All right, and uh, if you look at this, you have the multiples of seven. All right, this is significant in the Bible. So Japheth himself has seven sons. And then if you look at the way that Moses works here, he identifies seven grandsons of Japheth. Seven is a significant number in the book of the Bible uh, because seven is a holy number. So seven usually is trying to explain either one of two things, like wholeness or fullness, like a, a sense of completeness that's here, or blessing, all right? And so it seems like Moses is through Japheth trying to communicate blessing to us because of the promise, the blessing that's given to Japheth in Genesis chapter 9. So if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we worked through the story after the flood that Noah builds a vineyard. He gets drunk off of the wine from the vineyard, and his three sons come in and do something, right? So Ham, he recognizes, he finds his dad who's naked and drunk, and he incites his brothers to come in and ridicule his dad. And what happens is rather than Shem and Japheth coming in and ridiculing the father, they actually show him honor and kindness and grace. They take the blanket upon them. They deal with Noah's sin. They walk backwards, though, and they place the garment over Noah's body. And so the response here in Genesis chapter 9, you get the blessing of Shem, but you also get the blessing of Japheth, that Japheth would dwell in the tent of Shem. And so what we see happen here is there's this sense of blessing that's happening. You see the seven here It's fullness, it's completeness, but it's also portraying this blessing that God has placed on them. We see this come to fruition at the time of Jesus. So whenever Jesus goes and he dies, he fulfills this promise for Japheth because in Ephesians 2... It said that the, uh, Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility. So if you look at the temple of the people of God, there's this courtyard of the Gentiles. There's a wall that they could not exp- go in further into the presence of God. Jesus, because of the work that he's done, has gotten rid of all of the place of worship because we worship in spirit and truth now. So he's torn down this dividing wall of hostility, and he's brought Japheth and all of the nations into his family for those that trust and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. So you see what's happening here. Japheth, you see the Gentiles that are coming through. You see the blessing that God has given on Japheth in Genesis chapter nine. You look towards Jesus Christ. You see the fulfillment of it. Make sense? Then you move on to Ham. So we see another chart here these get progressively worse, so I'm sorry. (laughs) If you need me to be a professional screenshot of a commentary, a picture, or a diagram in a book, I'm not your person. So um, that's where I got these. So you see 30 nations that come from Ham, all right? And so what stands out About Ham and his descendants are two things. One, you get the most bitter rivals of God's people from the descendants of Ham. All right? So in Ham's family line, here's a few of the different people that we see throughout these 30 different names. You get the Egyptians, you get the Babylonians, you get the Assyrians, and then you get the Canaanites. All right? If you don't know anything about the backdrop of that, that's okay. Let me just help you. The Egyptians were Israel's oppressors. All right? So they've Moses is speaking to God's people as they, they experienced the exodus out of Egypt. Egypt has been their oppressor for 400 years. They've been slaves in the land of Egypt for 400 years. So immediately when they hear Ham and they see Egypt in here, something stirs inside of God's people, right? Then you have the Babylonians, and these are Israel's antagonists throughout the rest of the Old Testament, all right? Later in Israel's lineage you're going to see that they are actually put into exile in Babylon all right this is where you get the book of Daniel and you get Daniel in the lion's den that's the Babylonians okay that's what is in Ham's family line then you get the Assyrians which may be the cruelest conquerors in ancient history all right later you'll see that they destroy Israel's northern kingdom after they possess the promised land and God's people begin to flourish there they begin to sin against God God uses the Assyrians to come in, and they wipe out the northern kingdom. And then lastly, you get the Canaanites. And these are the ones that are cursed by Noah in Genesis chapter 9. So uh, Noah curses Ham, but rather than using Ham's name, he uses his going-to-be son Canaan and curses Canaan. See this in Genesis 9 verse 25, he'll be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. And so look, the Canaanites are the ones that possess the promised land. All right. So imagine you're the Israelites. You're coming out of Egypt. You just heard this name. You're oppressor for the 400 years there. And then you hear the Canaanites who possess the promised land that God is saying that you're going to go in and conquer these people. And he's going to give you this land. All this is very, very current for God's people, isn't it? Like, this is really helpful, all right? This is where we're coming from. This is where we're going. Here's the people that we're dealing with. Here's what we're up against. Moses is being a great leader to his people, all right? So all this is happening here. The second thing that stands out is that you see the possession of a rebellious spirit in all of Ham's descendants. And this is given to us, is explained to us in one particular descendant, which is Nimrod. What a name, all right? Nimrod. So here's what uh, Genesis 10:8 through 12 has to say about Nimrod. Uh, Cush, Cush fathered Nimrod, who began who sorry who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. The king, his kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From the land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Ir, Kala. glad you're not reading this, and it is me, and resin between Nineveh and the great city of Kalah. All right, so what does all this mean? All right, so here's what you need to identify out of this. All right, so the Hebrew meaning of Nimrod is we shall rebel. So immediately you get this idea of a rebellious spirit that Ham's descendants take from him that we see in Genesis chapter 9, and it trickles down to all of his descendants as well. And Nimrod highlights this, all right? Verse 8 says that Nimrod was powerful in the land. In Hebrew, this actually means he's a tyrant, all right? Not that he's just strong and powerful, but that he's a tyrant leader amongst his people. And then lastly, he's known for his hunting prowess. What does God desire in a king? He desires a shepherd king. And what's highlighted here for Nimrod is that he's a powerful hunter. So all of this, these nations, what, what Moses is trying to communicate through Nimrod for all of Ham's descendants is that they are aggressive, that they're contentious, that they're rebellious towards God and his people. That's what's taking place here for this Ham and his descendants and what Moses is trying to communicate to all of God's people. All right, so you have Japheth, then you have Shem, or uh, you have Ham, and now you get Shem. And so the table that I have up here for Shem is, I told you, it gets progressively worse. So uh, this is why I had you move up, all right, so you could see it a little bit better. Uh, so in Shem's family lineage, you see 26 nations. And what stands out about Shem is God's blessing, all right? So Genesis chapter 9, you see that Shem is blessed by Noah. What happens is God's people actually come from the family line of Shem. So Shem has a son, Eber. Eber is Hebrew for the, or Eber, uh, Hebrew is derived from the name Eber here. And then Eber is the forefather of Abraham, whom is what Genesis uh, later will communicate to us that he is the founder. He's the one that God creates the people of God out of Abraham. He gets this big promise that he's gonna, God's gonna make him an, an elaborate uh, nation, more numerous than the stars. And you get all this from Shem. And so Moses is essentially saying, all right, here's, where, here's, here's what's going on through this table of nations. Here's what's going on. As you're leaving Egypt, look, Japheth, he is the forefather of the nations that are out there, all right? They're the ones that are furthest away. Ham, he's the forefather of the nations that you'll face. These are the ones that, you're, that are neighbors to you. They're the ones that God's gonna do a work through you in order to give you the promised land, but also to combat the evil that's going on inside of these nations. And then Shem, look, this is where you come from. This is your father. These are the ones, this is like who you have stemmed from. He's tracing the, the blessing of God amongst his people here, as well as the promise of Genesis 3.15 is going to follow through with his people here that come from the family line of Shin. So like we said, these genealogies, like what what we said with previous genealogies, um, the Bible doesn't just relate human history through these, all right? So hopefully you have an understanding a little bit of the table of nations here, what Moses is doing, but like they also possess deeper purpose, all right? And so what we find here is at least three purposes, all right? And let me just kind of break them down for us for a few minutes, and then we'll, I want to spend more time on application than we usually do tonight. So here's the first one. It shows the unity of mankind. See the unity of mankind. So Moses is pointing out to God's people that all people are sons of Noah and Adam, all right? All these nations are finding their descent from Noah and his three sons. And so here's what I believe Moses is trying to highlight through these uh, three sons of Noah. It's the Imago Day that is possessed by all people. All right? This continues to be teased out throughout the book of Genesis. So the Imago Day is given to us in Genesis 1 and 2. We talked about it more fully there, but you've kind of seen this throughout the other genealogies as well, and Moses is bringing it up again. So essentially what Moses is trying to do, you see this like God's people are supposed to be different than the surrounding nations. That's what Moses is trying to highlight here is like, hey, you're to be different. All right. You see this teased out through the laws that God gives to his people later in the book of Exodus and other parts of the Pentateuch. And so uh, you, th- you see things like the, the Israelites, are, they're supposed to have just scales, meaning that they're supposed to not take advantage of people. They're supposed to treat them fairly, all right? They're to exercise justice, which means they're supposed to stand up for those that are oppressed or marginalized around them. And you see that they're to act with generosity towards others. So whenever they, they think about this, the agricultural people that they are, The farmlands that they have, there's instructions that they're supposed to leave some behind as they go and they bring in the harvest, supposed to leave some behind for those that are the poor or the foreigners that are there amongst themselves. This is different than how the rest of the nations treated other people or even treated those of their own nation. So Moses is looking at them and he's saying, Hey, look, God's Imago day is on every nation. They all have their trace back to the sons of Noah. And so look, every person, we are to acknowledge the value and worth and significance of every human being because they all possess that they are made in the image of God. So the surrounding nations are known for their brutality, but we as God's people are going to be known for our humaneness. The way that we act towards those that are around us. So, the genealogy emphasizes God's sovereignty, or uh, not only does it uh, emphasize the show of the unity of mankind that we all are traced back to the three sons of Noah, but um, so that's what's going on here. There's also this emphasis on God's sovereignty over all nations that takes place here. All right. So, here's what I mean by sovereignty I mean, God's constant care for an absolute constant care for and absolute rule over the nations. I wish I could read my own notes here. Um, This is uh, signified by the number 70, all right? So 70 here is a multiple of seven. It also shows fullness and completeness. And look, it correlates with the household of Jacob at the end of Genesis, all right? So think about this connection here. So Moses purposefully helps us see the fullness of the nations that God traces back to the three sons of Noah. At the end of Genesis, you see that there are 70 souls in Jacob's household, all right? So God is trying to help Israel see that they are one nation that are a part of one world under one ruling God. And here's what Deuteronomy uh, 32.8 gives in connection to this. It kind of gives a full uh, understanding of this. Here's what it says. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the people of Israel. Do you see that? 70 nations, 70 souls in Jacob's household, 70 nations that are here in this table of nations. God's trying to show Moses as well as the people of God that he is sovereign over all nations. So imagine that you're Noah or Moses with the people of God. This is what I believe Moses would be trying to say as he's trying to unpack this table of nations to the people of God. Look, God is in control of all of this. God's in control of all of this. So imagine you're Israel, you're leaving the nation of Egypt, and any time that you come come into conflict, as you're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, you come upon this big, uh, enormous people, these strong people, you're likely gripped with fear, aren't you? You don't have a home, you don't have a kingdom, you don't have places that are fortified, you just have God, and God is trying to help Israel see that he's in control of all nations. So whenever they come up to these other large nations, Moses is trying to tell the people of God, look, God's in control of this. He's in control of all that's happening. All of the nations are in subject to God's rule over them. Whether they understand it or not, God exercises his authority over all nations. When you go to war, remember that, look, God's the one that is governing even the rulers of these other nations, even though they may not understand it. When you go to the promised land and you see that they're large, masterful people, that it's an extensive land, and you think, how are we going to do this? You can be reminded that God is sovereign over all the nations. That's what Moses is trying to bring and draw out to the people of God as they're wandering through the wilderness. So you see the unity of mankind here. It's a purpose. It's a, a reason that Moses is giving us this table of nations. We see that God is sovereign over all the nations, but lastly, you see that God has has a redemptive plan and he's setting the stage for it here through the table of nations. So Moses is obviously tracing this promise and blessing that God gave in Genesis 3.15. So after the fall happens in the garden, God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And from that point on, Moses is helping us trace how this blessing and this promise is going to come to fruition, and we see it has been traced all the way out from Adam now to Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. So if you're Moses here, he's trying to give them a sense of hope as they're wandering through the nation, uh, through the wilderness, as they're about to enter into the promised land. He's trying to show the power and the strength and the sovereignty of God in all of this, but then he's also trying to remind them, look, the promise one is still coming the promised one is still coming we don't know when but look he is coming even with how things have transpired God is keeping his promise he's trying to remind God's people look your redemption is still coming God has brought you out of Egypt he's going to bring you into the promised land but this Messiah that he promised in Genesis three I'm tracing this promised blessing amongst God's people he is going to come all right so this is all, the, these are the purposes, all right? So hopefully all of this is insightful, right? We're looking at this list of 70 names rather than trying to read them off, trying to help you kind piece of piecemeal all this together. But here's a couple of questions for you, all right? A, question, a couple of questions I was wrestling with as I'm working through this. This is like, this is great, but how does it relate to us today, right? Like 70 names, historical names, Okay, kind of cool to be able to trace back how these origins of these nations found their way back to Noah's three sons, but like, what's our takeaway, right? Like, what are we supposed to take away from all this information? And here's kind of what I landed on, right? Here's, here's what I believe um, just through study this week, but also just what I felt the Lord impressing on me is that you can trust him. You can trust God, all right? So here's where I'm kind of getting this, all right? Um, Look, God's most frequent command throughout all of Scripture, do you know what it is? Don't be afraid. Over 300 times throughout the Scriptures, you have God calling his people, don't be afraid. What is that? Like, if you put that in a positive term, what is that? It's God telling us, you can trust me, right? You can trust me. So look, as, as you're looking at, like, these purposes, right? that there's an affirmation of the Imago day even here still in the table of nations, that you see that God is sovereign over all the nations, that God is laying the groundwork. He's setting the scene for a redemptive history to take place. I think God in all of this is trying to communicate to us, look, I'm a big, enormous, powerful, sovereign God. And what can you do with me? You can trust me. Like, I I felt personal conviction in this as I was wrestling with this. So, like, I don't know about you all. I I feel like I kind of live with, like, this constant tension in my life, right? I feel like my body is just tense a lot. I feel that I carry around my angst about life with me wherever I go. I feel like I'm a masseuse's dream, right? They just see me all wound up and they just like are, I I can make a lot of money off of you. Like that's kind of what I feel like I live with. Like I I think about my life and all that's going on. I think about the things that are going on in this church. I think about things that are happening in this world. I think about just the, the pressures that I put on myself, the pressures that I feel from other things. Like there's a lot that goes into our life that oftentimes we can just walk around with just living with a sense of tense. I'm just tense wherever I go. And as I look at this table of the nations and just all that God is in control of, and the way that he's been working throughout human history, and the way that he's laying the groundworks for how he's going to bring redemption to us, all this, God just has immense control over this entire world, doesn't he? And in the midst of all of this, he's constantly trying to tell his people that, I mean, you see it in Israelites as they're wandering through the wilderness. You see it throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You see promises in the New Testament where there's regularly instructions to us as Christians, don't be afraid. You can trust me. And so I, I have three ways that I, I want us to really think on this tonight as we um, spend the majority of our time here in application. So the first one is this. You can trust God with what's going on in our world. You can, you can trust God with what's going on in this world. I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel this way. I look on social media and I look at the TV screen and I feel a lot of pressure that we are to place our hope and dependence on human government, don't you? Like I feel this constant pressure that I have to choose which side of the aisle I'm going to fall on because I want to be on the right side of human history. You feel that yeah, talk with me, like do you feel that? You can say no if you don't, but I feel this like I feel this tension I, I, it's seeped this way into the church, hasn't it? Like you see churches that they move away from preaching the gospel of Jesus and they preach the gospel of the Republicans or the gospel of the Democrats, and you have to you have to align and figure out where you're going to be on which side of the aisle because it depends on which side of the aisle because you want to make sure you're on the right side of human history. So, I mean, you can even take with some of one of the examples that we try to work through here, like the idea of being humane. Like you have the left. It's like, hey, we have all these government systems that are trying to take care of the marginalized in our society. You need to fall on our side of the aisle. Then you have the conservative right that's like, hey, look how much we prioritize human life. Look at how much we place on the idea of the significance of the Mago Dei. They even try to seep in and use like the terminology of the Bible itself. And so they make a big deal about their legislation, right? Like they're trying to basically use some of these things that we would be like, yeah, I, I agree. Like we want to we want to care for the marginalized. But we also, we have a big priority on the Mago day that happens with human life, right? And so they're trying to, like, make us choose which side of the aisle. But I, look, I don't see that in the Bible, all right? When it comes to the Bible, I don't see that we are supposed to align with human government. What I see is that we are to trust in God's government, all right? So, like, We are to trust that God is sovereign over everything that is happening in human history, right? If there's anything that we can look back on the way that God has worked in this world is that even whenever bad things happen, that God is big enough and powerful enough that he uses bad things and turns them into good, all right? And so we are supposed to trust in the sovereignty of God and the government of God over any human institution that takes place here in this world. That's what our call is as Christians, that we don't, align with the right. We don't align with the left, but we, our priorities, our convictions are what God's priorities and God's convictions are, all right? So if we're to live into this, that we trust God here, here's what I think this kind of looks like. If you want some passages to go wrestle with what this looks like, here's some of them. Romans 13, you can write these down. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, Titus 3. These all speak into the existence of the church and what it looks like for us to live into being Christians, but yet still honoring the sovereignty of God and in human institutions, all right? So here's what I think this looks like. We pray a lot. We pray a lot, all right? So prayer and trust in God are kind of like the and Topanga, all right? If you know, then you know, right? Like, they belong together, right? Like, if you trust God, then look, you're a person that prays. There's a dependence on God in the way that you come and you call on the name of God to work in this world that you can't separate the two. So look, if you want to live into, I trust God with what going on in this world and how he's teasing all of these things out in human history. You're a person that prays. And you pray a lot. You pray for the people that are in government. You pray for the things that are happening and the occurrences that are happening in this world. You're a person that prays. But then you also obey human government. You do. As far as you can according to what our biblical convictions are, you follow what human institution Puts in legislation here in this world. You see this in those passages that I list off. We are supposed to follow because God appoints those leaders that are here in this world. And so we're to follow them as much as we biblically can. All right? There are times where our biblical convictions are going to butt up against what human government is going to tell us, and we can't go with that. We are aligned with the government of God. We have to live for the city of God, not the city of this world. And so we have to align with that, but we try to live as much as we can in obedience to the human government because we believe that God has put them there, all right? And then lastly, we play our part, all right? So look, you do the best you can to try to study what different people and the platforms that they're running on. Whenever time comes, you're supposed to go vote and vote according to the conscience of God, the priorities of God, the convictions of God, and you do the best you can, all right? Now, look, sometimes our person doesn't get into office, and here's the thing. You can live with faith that God is still working here in this world, even if it, we feel it's the wrong decision. We can trust in God's past and it speaks to the future that God is going to use the way that maybe something bad, he may turn it for the good, but we can trust him in all of these things, all right? So th- you can trust him with what's going on in this world. You don't have to give in to the social pressures that you find online or maybe even some of your circles that you're in, whether it be your neighborhood or your workplace. You are a Christian believer. You follow the government of God, not the right or the left. We'll never platform a political party here in this church as long as I'm your pastor, all right? We are a people of God. We follow the government of God. So we trust God with what's going on in this world. But not only can you trust God with the matters of this world, you can also trust God with the matters of your life, which is the second one. You can trust God with what's going on in your life, all right? So we have people in different phases of life here. All right. So let me speak, let me try to speak to those different phases of life for just a moment. Like I I just want to try to do the best that I can to speak into your life and love you in the moment that you're in. All right. So if you're a younger adult here, all right, um, here's probably some of the things that you feel. It can feel like your career and your dreams are in the hands of other people. You feel that at all? Like you have these big desires, these big dreams, these big aspirations for what you wanna do in this life. But yet you still find yourself like maybe at the disposal of a professor hoping you get the grade that you can so you can move on in the career path that you're wanting to pursue. Maybe you are in athletics right now and it feels like your coach is really dictating what your path in life looks like when it comes to your uh, career in athletics. Maybe it's a boss in your new career that you feel like you are at his disposal or her disposal at all times and that you're desiring to get to a certain position and it feels like your whole career is in the hands of another person based off of how they feel about you. Or maybe it's even a significant other, right? Like you're trying to find someone that you can spend the rest of your life with and so you're dating or you're trying to date people and it feels like all these hopes, all these dreams, all these aspirations that you have to be a part of a family, to build a family, lie in the hands of another person. Right? Anybody feel that way, young adults? Anybody feel that way? Look, God is providentially at work in your life. He is. God is providentially at work in your life, young adults. Say that with me. God is providentially at work in my life. He is. All right. So I had a pastor in the previous church that I was at. His name was Mike Figpin. He got up and he was preaching a sermon on just the providence of God. And he was in a. He was working in a bank. He went to seminary. He did a lot of education and training to be a professor in a seminary, yet he found himself in corporate America in a bank, and he was just constantly questioning, God, why am I here? Like, this has nothing to do with the desires and dreams that I had. But as he uh, moved forward in his story, he talked about how he became the president of this evangelical society. And he was giving a lot of oversight to a lot of the work that was being done across multiple seminaries. And then there was a job opportunity because of what he was doing in this evangelical society that he got to go step into his dream job in a seminary. It wasn't the path. It wasn't the course. It felt like people constantly had his, his uh, future in their hands. But he said at the end of the day, he could see how God was providentially working throughout his life, bringing about his purposes for his life to fruition here in this world. And look, God is going to do that with you too. You can trust God with what's going on and happening in your life for those that are more in the median adult age, all right? So I think this is kind of where I feel I fall right now. Some of you are like, well, you're super old. Well, I feel like I fall into the median adult (laughs) stage. Um, It can feel like there's just a ton of, you can feel the weight of responsibility of life on your shoulders right now, can't you? You know what I'm saying? If you're in this median adult range, like, you feel just the weight of responsibility of your shoulders. So you feel the responsibility for your own life, but you also begin to feel the responsibility for other people's lives. Like, if you have a family and you have kids, you're beginning to feel more and more responsibility. So this is what it can kind of look like. Like, you have a family that you have to provide for. You know how these bills that are starting to, like, just— Every single day, you go to the mailbox, and it seems like every time you open it, there is like a new bill for something that you didn't know that you had, and you have to figure out how am I going to have the finances to secure this to make sure that I can pay off all these different things. Um, Then you have the weight of job. Usually, you are kind of like beginning to work your way up in like your company. Like if you're a good worker, then you're given more opportunities, but with more opportunities comes more responsibility. And then you have you get houses. Sometimes you have to work your way up to a bigger size house because your family's growing and that means there's more projects around the house to do there's more yard that you have to cut there's more things that you have to stay on top of and it just feels like all these things are beginning to add up on top of each other and then the last thing is you have stinking cars right something is always wrong with the car like there's your car is never okay If your car is okay today, it's gonna be wrong tomorrow. I promise you, if there's anything I've learned in this world, your car is going to fail you. And so look, you have all these things that you feel just on your shoulders, don't you? Like, all this responsibility is not just I have to take care of myself and all the things that I'm supposed to do in this world, but now I have to bear the weight of the responsibility of other people in my life. Look, here's what we can see. I hope you can look at the table of nations as you leave here tonight and say, I can entrust God with my cares and concerns. You have a God that is big enough that he can hold you and sustain you as well as everything that's happening in your life. He's big enough. You can can trust him. Like, he literally, you can come and you can pray these things into his hands and in trust and faith, sleep at night. That's what you can do. A lot of people um, that are, we have some very particular things that I think are going on in some of our people's lives right now. Some of us are about to step into big major moves. So you're trying to figure out how do we transition all of our stuff from a house to a new state um, you can trust god you can trust god he's got you he's big enough to hold these things and to carry you right now some of us feel the weight of the health of our own children don't we some of us feel the weight of what's going on in our kids lives we feel helpless we feel like we're out of control and we don't know what to do we don't know where to turn look god has you He's big enough to hold you. Some of us are dealing with career changes and whether we take a job or we don't take a job, look, God has you. He can hold you. He can sustain you. You can bring your cares. You can bring your concerns to God and he will walk with you. He will carry you. He will be your strength. Through a list of 70 names, you can find this truth that God can work. He's working in your life. He can sustain you. So here's what this looks like. Here's how we can step into this practice. Look, again, you pray. You, you pray. God, I, I need you. I recognize that you are big. I recognize that you're sovereign. I recognize that you have all things in your hands. God, I need you. Will you come and will you work in my life? We pursue wisdom? We go to the scriptures And to the best of our ability, we look and we seek and discern God's will and his purposes for how we live in this world. We want to know the Bible and the scriptures and the heart of God so deeply that when we get into certain situations, we can almost spout off the words of God because we know him so intimately. You pursue wisdom. And then lastly, you exercise faith. Look, a lot of times it's just a matter of like, I'm doing the best. I pray, I'm asking, I'm seeking for the Lord's direction here. I'm going to the scriptures. I'm going to people in my faith family at the local church. I'm talking with them. I'm pursuing wisdom with them there. But then at the end of the day, like I'm going to make a decision that I feel is going to best serve and follow in line with God, with what God is said in the scriptures, what I'm hearing from his people, what I feel from the Holy Spirit inside of me, and I'm going to trust that God is helping me make the right decision. And if he works throughout human history and making bad decisions turn for good, I'm going to trust that if I make a bad decision that he's going to turn it for my good too. That's what it looks like. You live with the trust that God is doing work in your life. So you can trust God with the matters of this world. You can trust God with the matters of your own life. And then lastly, you can trust God with the matters of eternity. You can trust God with your salvation. You can trust God with the salvation of other people. Here's where you may be, all right? Let's talk personally. Maybe life has been really hard. It feels like there's just been constant storms that have just been at your door constantly over and over and over. And maybe you're coming in here tonight and you're feeling like you're holding on to your faith by a thread. It's like, man, I, I feel like I've just been beaten down with bad news, hard things, things breaking in my life, hard relationships just constantly for months now and I don't know if I can hold on much longer. Look, here's the good news for you. It's not your grip on your faith, but it's God's grip on you that really matters in this life. And we see that we have a big God that has been at work since the beginning of this world, here even in this passage, that he's laying the foundations for redemptive history and that he's accomplishing those purposes because he's in charge. Your salvation does not depend on you. It depends on the kindness and the goodness of God and the way that he's acted in human history. Maybe, as you look at other people, loved ones that are in your life, You say, there's no way that God, that this person in my life, this loved one in my life, that they are gonna trust Christ in this world. This is what I love about doing baptism testimonies here. All right, so whenever we have a person that comes up and they're getting baptized, we have them write out their testimony. And here's what should be going on inside of us. Every single time that we hear a person's story about how the Lord intervened in their life and saved them, we are reminded that we have zero zero control over a person's heart, but God is able and he's powerful to speak into a dead heart and make it alive. Every single time we do about it. That's why most of us in this room are crying at the end of a baptism testimony, because we're reading about the good work of God that takes a dead, broken heart and makes it a heart of flesh and brings new life into this person. Their life has transformed a person that lives in the the kingdom of darkness, now to the kingdom of light. Every time you see that baptism testimony, it should spur in you that God does still save people and that there is no person that is too far off because there is no person that is further down than six feet down and God will raise them up again if he chooses to do so by giving them faith and belief in Jesus Christ. That's how big and powerful your God is. So here's what that looks like, all right, as we lean into that we can trust God with our salvation. You pray a lot. You do. I'm repetitive, but it's true. You pray a lot. Look, God changes hearts. You pray. You pray, God, will you help me, help me in my belief. I need my heart transformed into the likeness of Jesus. As you are praying for someone else that doesn't know Jesus, you pray and you bring this person and their name and their salvation to the God that can actually do something about it. And then the second thing is you share your faith. Here's the good news, that whenever you share your faith, some are going to believe This is a promise that you get in the scriptures. So whenever you go and share the hope that has saved you with someone else, someone else is going to believe. And so we practice this. This is why we are a church that practices evangelism, that we go out and we share our faith, because we believe with trust that God saves people, that when we share our faith, that someone else is going to believe. And then lastly, we train in grace. We live in this cycle that we, through the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit, we walk in obedience to God in this life. And when we fail, we are a people that practice repentance. This is over and over and over again. This is the lifestyle for the Christian. That and through this progression of walking in the strength of the Spirit, trying to obey the commands of God because they bring joy and delight to us in this life, but when we fail because we are living with conflicted spirits, where we still live in a broken world with broken bodies that still have subject to sin at times, that we walk in repentance trusting that Christ and the work that he's done in our life saves us and we continue this cycle over and over again this is what it looks like to trust God with our salvation that he we pray that he would conform us into the likeness of Jesus we share with other people believing that some will be saved and we train in this cycle of grace where we walk in obedience and repentance because this is what God has for us as his people you feel that you are like dead quiet. <laughs> so either I lost you or you're like fully with me. I don't know which one it is, all right? So here's why we can trust this, all right? All right, here's why our greatest reason to trust God in all of this is because we can find all of this in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all right? You can trust this because this is how God has acted in human redemptive history through Jesus Christ. All right. So in Jesus, God puts on human flesh. The greatest affirmation of the Imago Day is that God Himself would come and put on human flesh. Fully God. And fully man In Jesus, God displays his sovereignty over the nations because what happens in Jesus' life, both Jewish government officials and Roman government officials make a bad decision, but what does God do? That he turns it for our good. Jesus is crucified. This is innocent man that has done nothing wrong. He's the only one that's perfectly walked in complete obedience to God in this world. What happens in his life is he stands at trial and Jewish government officials and Roman government officials agree that Jesus is to be crucified. It is horrific. Jesus goes and he dies a painful death that he did not deserve, but God takes a bad human decision and ultimately turns it for our good because it's through the death of Jesus that that we have salvation and right relationship with God. Acts 4, the church as they are praying after there's been persecution that's happened to some of the church leaders amongst them, here's what they pray. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen, meaning that all that transpired because of bad human decisions that they made on their own, God had seen this, he planned this, and he used it for our good so that we can stand right before God. And then in Jesus, God fulfills his redemptive plans because, look, Jesus is alive. He's not dead in a tomb. Jesus is alive. He's seated at the right hand of God. And Jesus reigns where God is making his enemies the footstools of Jesus. And look, when Jesus comes back, what are the people that he's saving for himself? all nations of all tribes of all languages and all peoples the 70 nations that are before us in the table of nations there will be people that have called on the name of Jesus that will be there for all eternity because God is a savior who saves people not just a particular nation or tribe or people but he has brought all of us in keeping his promise to Japheth that the Gentiles will be a part of the family of God. We can trust all of this because we see it in redemptive history. Look, we are a people that pray because we see the way that Jesus prayed. How does he instruct us in the Lord's prayer? He says that we are to pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven amongst the nations. Look, we pray that God's will would happen here amongst all nations, amongst all peoples that He would divinely intervene in this world. We see it in the way in our own personal lives. How does he instruct us to pray? Give us today this daily bread. God, would you provide for me? Would you work in my life? Would you bring to fruition the things that I need in this world? Bring about your purposes for my life. And then what does he say about eternity? Forgive us our sins. Jesus is perfect. He doesn't need prayer for the forgiveness of sins, but he instructs us to pray because we see Jesus is the best the shepherd king that every single one of us needed, the kind of king that God desires over his people, and he speaks into our life and tells us how to pray. We can trust all of this. We can trust this God with all this happening in this world. We can trust God with all that's happening in our life. We can, trust all, we can trust God with everything that's happening throughout human history and eternity because we see it all come to fruition in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And all of this we can get from a table of nations, a list of names. So here's how I want to close out, all right? Stay with me. All right, like I was saying, I have this tendency to live really wound up in tents. And I have a hunch that you probably do the same thing. All right, so here's what I want us to do. I want us to do a practice I want us to say something out loud, and I want to call us to something this week, all right? So here's what I want us to practice. You're going to take a deep breath, all right? Literally right now, together, let's collectively take a deep breath. Ready? One, two, three. Breathe out. You have a God that is big. You can trust him with what's going on in this world. You can trust him with what's going on in your life. Look, you can trust him with your salvation. He's going to bring you all the way home. Now I want you to say that out loud. All right? So say this with me. I can, trust him. I can trust him. You can. You can trust God. In your life, with what's happening in your life today, with what may bring fear of what's happening in our world right now, look, you can trust him. And then look, here's my charge for you. Go live in the joy of your salvation this week. Okay? Go enjoy Jesus. You can live relaxed. You have a God that you can trust. He's at work in this world. He's proven it time and time again. And you can trust that he's doing it this week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.